Hey, Doc, what's this? Where? Right there, above the squiggle. What, like that? Looks like a star. Or a meteor. It's a mole. Just get it out of your system. No, I'm fine. I I'm, insist. Yeah, we can work okay, together better you, if you just got Mole! Bloody mole! We're not supposed to talk about the bloody mole, but there's a bloody mole winking me in the face! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 135 and 136. They begin with Helen wanting to help the Mariner and end with the Mariner finding a convenient pattern of holes to aid his climb. Our special guest this week is none other than Makeshift Mike from the Apocalypse Post. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me on today. I am so excited to have you today because you are one of the premier media creators for Wasteland Weekend. That's right, yeah. Ever since 2011, I've been in charge of the documentary crew. So we're like the video crew. I don't do photos, I just do video and everyone gets that mixed up. Yeah, and then a couple years later, I started the Apocalypse Post because I had all this extra video I didn't know what to do with. And that was kind of my place to just kind of splooge it all out into the world. Several years ago, when we first started doing this podcast and the idea of Wasteland Weekend really started to exist as a thing on the horizon that we should strive towards. I went on YouTube and I started searching for, okay, what is all this information about Wasteland Weekend that I should know? And the first thing I found was the Apocalypse Post. Awesome. Yeah, it was pretty wild because, you know, a lot of it was like documentary and like trying to just show all the stuff that happens out there. And then along the way, I did like a video that was basically the 10 things you should know about Wasteland or something like that. And it did so well. And I didn't realize there was this whole bunch of people that were just like hungry for how do I do this wasteland thing. And so I started kind of trickling those in every now and then and they've done great. I think Wasteland Weekend as a concept can be a little bit intimidating. It's these group of arguably super fans who gather in an incredibly inhospitable environment and party for a weekend and have a great time. But to outsiders, it feels like there is a barrier to entry. So Getting these videos out there and learning more about it, for one, brings down that barrier of entry, and two, shows that there isn't much of a barrier of entry at all. That's so true. So with Wasteland, I do their highlights videos, and that is like the commercial for Wasteland, right? It shows off the most badass costumes, the biggest bands, the vehicles that probably took years to finally put together, but it doesn't show what people look like in their first year or what the vehicle looks like when someone first starts chopping it up. And so, yeah, I've been able to kind of dive into that a little bit and show a bigger spectrum of Wastelanders. And you know what? There's a video on my channel that's basically three hours of Wasteland. And it's just a camera set up, just watching the world go by. I kind of thought of it like if you were playing Fallout and you had to go to the kitchen or something, your character is just sitting there idling and just the world <laughs> is happening around it. So that's kind of what it's like. It's like your character is idling at Wasteland. And... What was really cool is people started picking out not the best costumes, but the more basic ones. And they kind of let them see, you know, you can show up in a simpler costume and still fit right in 
without it being a problem. And more recently, you've started expanding the Apocalypse Post from just YouTube content into a proper podcast. The podcast kind of came from one of my videos. We explored one of the cosplays, and this was with my tribe member Hotshot of the Dukes of the Nuke. And it was a longer form video, and I thought it worked really well, but it wasn't quite the fast-paced stuff I usually put out. And so that kind of trickled over time, and it was actually a Zoom call that I had with a bunch of the Wasteland staff. And after we did our meeting, everyone hung out, and we're just telling these stories, and I thought they were great. And so the first podcast episode that I recorded was actually a Wastelander stories, where literally it's just four of us hanging out, telling our best stories from Wasteland City. And it went long. It was like 90 minutes long. So... (laughs) (laughs) But what I realized with podcasts is you can be long. You can... Let the content go. And me as a podcast listener and a huge podcast fan, I love the longer stuff because you can just hit play and then you can work, you can drive, you can do what you've got to do without having to constantly find your next thing to listen to. And so for that longer content, I thought the podcast would be the perfect way to let that happen while still doing something different than the YouTube. As a longtime Wasteland Weekend attendee, you are familiar with the D's that was dragged out to the center of the desert. I love the episode you did of the podcast specifically about that. Awesome. Yeah, that was, they decommissioned the D's in 2019. What a sad day. And it was amazing because it was really the first like major Waterworld themed art piece at Wasteland. There were a few different vehicles, like there were the land sharks and that kind of thing that kind of played up with that rusty hull kind of aesthetic. But when the D's showed up, it was probably our largest piece of fan art at that point, it was a camp-sized vehicle, and it was huge. And it became one of Wasteland's best side stages for years, which was so fun. Perhaps it's a hallmark of conventions and events that are focused around a specific fandom. I think it's a hallmark of success where the fandoms that exist just outside that circle start to become part of the circle. And so we've got this Waterworld fan art object that now is part of Wasteland Weekend. Because Wasteland Weekend is strong enough to sustain itself, it's now strong enough to sustain more and start pulling other things in. And that's a success story, absolutely. Yeah, and it was great because other tribes kind of like started to build off of that. There was the Faceless Merchants who built Gregor's Tower oh. right next to it, Ooh. which was oh, pretty cool. I've never heard of that. It's our, I think our only multi-story structure where you can actually like go stand up top there's a couple others but this one is actually just simply the biggest it was huge all like steel structure i don't know how they pulled it off and then of course people started bringing their boats on trailers and then they would make it look like they were landlocked in place so that (laughs) instead of bringing a camper you could camp in or on your boat (laughs) so it ended up being this whole like dry water world corner of wasteland oh that's spectacular oh yeah that's amazing I love the idea of a tribe bringing their boats, positioning them up in a circle, and making their atoll. Yeah, exactly. Phenomenal. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that'll be the next iteration now that the Ds uh, won't be there. Might be a lot of smaller structures. That would actually be a great idea. I would love to see an atoll at Wasteland. Yeah. It'd be a great way to section off a block of camps. Yeah. Like, this is our camp. You have to trade to get in, which I know trading <laughs> is a big part of Wasteland Weekend. Oh. There is a lot of dirt available, though. So I, I think the value say, has gone yeah, down slightly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> People showing up with jars of dirt. And it's right. like, well, water is still a hot commodity, though. 
Yeah, we're trying to rebuild Waterworld, so bring a couple jars of H2O, some mm-hmm. hydro. I love it. Yep. <laughs> what is your personal history, if I could use that phrase, with Waterworld? Like, did you see it when it first came out? Are you more of like a TV watcher? Well, I'll start by saying Waterworld is my favorite post-apocalypse movie, right off the bat. Wow. For me, it trumps Mad Max. It trumps Road Warrior. It even trumps Fury Road. Wow. Wow. Which is kind of crazy. I've seen it more than any other post-apocalypse movie by far. (laughs) And part of that is because it was on TV, right? It was on like Saturday afternoon TV when nothing else was on. It would just be in replay constantly. And they did the extended cut. It was, of course, dumbed down a little bit. They had, it looks like slime rather than it looks like shit for the eyeball, you know? And I was like, something's wrong here. Something's wrong. <laughs> but I don't actually remember where I first saw the movie. I don't think I saw it in theaters. So maybe the TV cut was my first. But I remember thinking that where they replaced swear words and where there were new scenes, that was weird, right? So I must have seen the real one probably on VHS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't remember, but... It's been my favorite for a long time. I think you are the first person to say that Waterworld is your favorite. That is so remarkable to me. (laughs) We've had several people who love and adore this movie, Mm -hmm. but I've never had anybody say that it was their favorite, that it was better than Mad Max. (laughs) I know. I'm putting myself at risk, huh? I've been so pleasantly surprised talking to people from all different angles of this movie how much love there is for this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's kind of wild because, yeah, the media, they went through that whole frenzy trying to talk about how it's going to fail, how it's overinflated budget, how people have died. None of that was true. Maybe the budget, maybe the time. Yeah, some of it was true. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the media really helped kill this movie in a way that they hadn't done to that point because what they love more than to say a movie's going to be good is to say an expensive movie is going to (laughs) suck. And so... Yeah, then everyone got surprised when it became this cult hit in the years following, and people loved it. And then by the time that the Ulysses cut came out, I mean, that solidified this movie as just gold. Absolutely. I don't think we could really do a proper examination of this movie if we were simply doing the two-hour cut. It Mm -hmm. just wouldn't be right. Yeah, I agree. There are some holes in there. And there are some extras in the Ulysses cut that really make a lot of sense. Plus, Jack Black. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That scene after they've flown around the Timuran and got stuck and his buddy got, you know, impaled in the side and died. And he's crying but trying to debrief back Mm -hmm. on these. Yeah, it's just magic. He's hilarious. And he's having like this emotional traumatic moment, but somehow makes it funny. And that's, you know, Jack Black can make anything funny. Yeah, there's no need for tears. There are plenty where Ed came from. (laughs) (laughs) That line is so perfect. It's a good example of how sometimes it's not a good idea to do things alone, which is the exact sentiment that Helen has at the beginning of our clip for today, where we've got a close-up on the Enforcer, but we hear Helen in voiceover saying that she doesn't want to let the Mariner go and tackle this gargantuan task on his own. And we cut over to Gregor, who sidles up to Helen and says, oh, don't worry, my dear, you're not going to have to. And then we cut wide to the makeshift atoll and Gregor's airship floating beside it. And I love how we get some foreshadowing to what we're going to see later on the movie, but it's not 
beating us over the head with Gregor being like, oh, we're going to retrofit it and armor it up. It's like, no, we're just going to show it floating there so that when it shows up, it's not out of the blue. Yeah. What's really cool about this scene is everybody is reverting back to their original character positions, right? Well, the Mariner, I guess, he's now made his decision to be a better person, but Helen is going back to, I need to protect this girl. And all the Atollers are going back to shunning strangers. Let's stick together in our small group. That's how we survive. That's how we survive this long. And they're making the decision to not get involved, except it's viral that now Gregor is like, you know what? I'm joining you on this. The care for other people. That's what this movie is all about, right? Is the care for other people. And the Mariner, who was the one who cared about other people the least, is the one that's now leading this charge to care about Enola. I really like that the movie actually uses some subtlety, which they don't always <laughs> use subtlety in this movie. But at the end of this scene, it really is nice and subtle that Gregor has an idea He's the madcap scientist of the group. So, of course, he has an idea. He's the guy who has ideas. We just leave it at that and move on. And I really, really like that it's low key and it's quiet. He's not fumbling all over the place. He's not spewing forth ideas of what he's going to do or questions that he has. He just, you're not going to go alone. And then we move on. I like it. That's a really good point. They could have done another scene with Gregor there, having him prep everything, but it was just unneeded. And yeah, you're right. I like that they kept it simple. He's foreshadowing that the Mariner's not going to have to go it alone. We look up at at his airship. What do we call this thing? <laughs> Honestly, I switch between I... so many different things. Airship, balloon, dirigible, flying machine. <laughs> Somewhere in the lore. Yeah. Somewhere deep in the lore, this thing has a name. <laughs> I like calling it an airship because I am a sucker for airships. <laughs> yeah. There are not enough airships in post-apocalyptic movies. So true. And I guess he's the most steampunk element of Waterworld, isn't he? I think so, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Having him just tease that, I think, really sets it up. And if he had not said that line and then shows up to save the day later in the movie, it would have felt like uh, Deus Ex Machina. Exactly. But instead, they gave just that little bit of a hint to let us know that it was coming. Gregor has already been enough of a deus ex machina already, showing up after the trimaran has been burned. Right. Sure, we're establishing a pattern at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Gregor is not a wizard. He shows up late. Like, there are times where he's meant to show up, times where he could be really helpful, After the battle is mostly over, when things are really falling apart, you know, maybe he is a wizard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He only shows up when there's no other possibility of survival. As long as he's not drifting just out of sight, watching everything, be like, okay, are they desperate enough yet? Nope. Gonna wait. (laughs) Desperate enough yet? Maybe. Getting a little closer. And then he flies in. He's got a complex. Yeah. (laughs) Being that... He's up a good 40 or 50 feet normally. He would see so far past the horizon, right? So he could actually clear the LZ before he approaches too much. So are there smokers? No, we're good. (laughs) Speaking of smokers, let's cut over to the D's. We find it in an establishing shot surrounded by fog or smoke. I know the book describes it as a fog bank that's surrounding the boat. But inside the Deacon's, I guess, main cabin here, we find Enola. She is 
not tied down to a table, but pinned by the Doctor and the Nord who are going over her tattoo. And in the initial shot that we see, there is a finger that is following the arrow up Enola's tattoo. And I wanted to so quickly say, oh, it's a recycled shot. This is a shot we saw earlier in the movie. But it's not technically the same shot that I thought it was. I saw this and I said, oh, well, this looks just like in Gregor's Tower where he's tracing his hand up her tattoo because of the placement of the hands in the shot. They're clearly Gregor's hands. But in the shot in episode 15, it's like 30 minutes into the movie, when his finger traces up her back and reaches the top of the tattoo, he pokes her a little bit. And you can see the skin (laughs) deform. Here in this later shot, when the fingers follow up, instead of poking at the top, they lift away. So it's likely an alternative take, that has been slotted in here, but the hands are definitely the same. So it's Gregor's hand. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, that's Ah. interesting. I didn't pick that up. Okay. I do notice that she winces a little. Right. You think a poke would be appropriate. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what did they just do to her to make her flinch? Where the rest of this scene, she's pretty stoic. Huh. Maybe his finger was just cold. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) When we watch Enola lying on the table and we pull up to see the doctor in the Nord. Do you notice what the Nord has in his hand? Oh, no. It's a compass. Like one of those Yeah, it's a drafting compass. Exactly. So, oh, yeah. Oh, He's likely jabbed her with the metal end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I do need to correct myself. I don't think it's a drafting compass. I think it's a navigation compass with two pointy ends as opposed to a pointy and a pencil. Too funny. The main problem that the Doctor and Nord are having with this tattoo is they don't know what anything means. And the Nord is grasping at straws. Hey, what's this? And he thinks, oh, is it a star? There's a smoker behind them, says it's a meteor. And the Doctor's like, it's a mole. <laughs> Sometimes it's tough to tell these things. I still have so many questions that are not answered by this scene about the intentions of the people who tattooed her. If the intention was for it to be a readable map, for one, is it really a good idea to put it over a mole that could skew <laughs> reading the map? That that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. Was there actually a mole there? Who knows? Like in the shot? I don't know if oh, there was a mole true. there. We do get a really good look at her back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And two, they go on to talk about how they can't read it because it's not flat. Well, of course you can read it. In the state that it's in, because that's the state it was tattooed in. That's how it was intended to be read. Yeah. I love the idea that it has to be curved on her back to read it properly. That if it were flattened out, then it wouldn't make any sense. (laughs) Wait, does it? It does not need to be flat. I don't think it needs to be flat or curved. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It is what it is. It's pretty flat. The shot of her back is pretty flat. There's a little bit of curvature up on the sides where her shoulder blades poke out. Mm-hmm. Right. Other than that, it's pretty flat. They're yeah. just making excuses because they can't read it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The boss has come into the room asking for an update, and the doctor is thinking, okay, what is an excuse I can use to explain away why I haven't figured this out yet? Right. <laughs> yeah, I think he's just trying to buy some more time. And it's also showing that these smokers really don't care about hurting this girl yeah not that they've not reiterated that several times in that the smokers just don't care about life or death but yeah i think it's trying to raise the importance of saving her now (laughs) why is the first thing he thinks of 
we're going to cut the skin off of her back, stretch it, mount it, give us a proper look. Why not just trace it or something? Yeah, that would be my thought is like copy it down. Like Gregor did? Yeah. Make exactly. a copy? The smokers are not dumb by any stretch, but I don't think they're necessarily clever. Yeah, that's a good point. The Nord has shown a little bit of dimness in the past. <laughs> a little bit. He's not always the, the sharpest in the box, but I don't think there's a lot of thinking outside the box mm-hmm. Yeah, going on around here. Every time the Nord returns to the Ds, I'm always surprised when he doesn't have a bottle in his hand. <laughs> And he just strikes me as the kind of person that as soon as the day breaks, he breaks open a case of alcohol and just starts going at it. Yeah. That seems fair, actually. (laughs) I just noticed a little something in this scene. It's going to sound really weird, and I'm sorry about that, but it's something that I noticed. So as we are listening to the doctor and the Nord talk about how they can't read the thing, I'm looking at Enola. Her butt in this shot is way too big to be a 10-year-old's butt. That is not Tina Majorino. I need to give this another look. Yeah. I say, I am... And now that I'm thinking about it, this 10-year-old girl, it's not exactly great to have her about topless laying here with these two men groping all over her. That's not great. So it's probably not Tina Majorino. For me, it almost looks like not that there's a stand-in for her butt that she has some kind of extra padding. And here we are talking about a young girl, but she's 18 plus now. So we're good. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> you're right. It now. is one shot. So it is Tina Majorino. Yeah. So two things. They're all over her. And second, that is not her butt. Yeah. It was a very different time in filmmaking, but yeah, it almost looks like maybe there's some kind of padding or maybe some kind of like bag that she would wear. But like yeah. Yeah. Pack. It, yeah, Exactly. Yes, a fanny pack. And they were all the rave I mean, in it 1994. Was the 90s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should be very happy that it's not a fluorescent color. <laughs> That's a good point. It's always gray area when you're working with child actors. And this is for a, how old was she during this? 10, 12, somewhere in there? Yeah, somewhere in there. Props on her for dealing with this scene. There's just think- a lot of poking and prodding and leaning on her <laughs> and stuff that... Isn't great. Do you think they made a false body for her so that she's just sticking out the edge of the table and everything past her shoulders is just a false body they made for her? I don't, but (laughs) this butt that they've got going on does look like the sort of thing you would see on SNL. (laughs) (laughs) I never would have noticed this before. I will freely admit I missed the detail. Of how bigger butt was? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, now that you've mentioned Saturday Night Live, all I can think of is that one acupuncture sketch. Exactly. With the false back and they start sticking in needles, then they've got pressurized red liquid shooting out the oh back my. of this false body. I haven't seen this one. <laughs> it's oh, it is spectacular. <laughs> I wanna dip into the book. They don't mess around with the doctor in the Nord being unable to decipher the tattoo in the book. They set it up very differently, where Enola is dragged into the deacon's stateroom, which is so much more lavishly decorated than it is here in the movie. Hmm. But as I jump into the book, we're on page 256. The Nord was watching her, guarding her, and that awful doctor who dragged those big canisters on wheels behind him, tubes stuck up his nose, was there too. Yesterday, the doc had stuck a needle in her arm, 
and it had made her terribly sick. She'd burned up through the night, had a worse fever than that time she had what Helen, who had nursed her through it, called the flu. She still felt sweaty and sick to her stomach, and her arm was sore and bruised from where the doc stuck the needle in. Sometimes she made sick sounds that she couldn't control, whimpers and groans. Shut up, the Nord said. If you're not answering a question, shut up. He's coming, Enola said quietly. He'll ride the wind. He'll come and save me. Shut up, the Nord said. Afraid she can't help herself, the doc said. She's not entirely in control of her faculties after receiving my treatment. Well, you said she'd spill her guts for us, the Nord snapped accusingly. And all we got was babbling, no answers. The doc shrugged and smiled weakly. I'm afraid in Waterworld, medicine is something of an exact science. What did he stick her with? <laughs> when we were talking about the deacon arriving at the cell to interrogate Enola, we had that quick shot of the doc who said maybe a little shiver from the liver will loosen her lips. And we started talking about pufferfish poison. Oh, shoot. Tetrodotoxin, I think it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that like a truth serum? It's a sort of... Of truth serum, <laughs> we discovered. The FDA is very reticent to say, yes, this is a truth serum. But here in the book, they went through with that plan. The deacon's opposition to the idea, like, don't poison the child, you'll likely kill her. Well, here in the book, they went and did it anyway. Oh, wow. <laughs> the book is always more gruesome, isn't it? It, it is. really is. <laughs> do you think the deacon gave them permission to do so, or did the doctors do it of his own accord? Given the dead end that the deacon found himself on after the interrogation, it would not surprise me if the doctor said again, hey, do you think we should do the poison now? And he would have dismissively waved his hand and not exactly given them permission, but probably removed his opposition. I agree. I think at that point, it was pretty obvious that she wasn't going to voluntarily give up any information. Therefore, there's no point in keeping her alive. So you might as well try something yeah. that might kill her or might work. You can be a little bit of Ivan Drago in this situation. Be like, you know what? If she <laughs> dies, she dies. Mm -hmm. We got to try and get that answer out of her. Yeah. <laughs> and then it would be a lot less screaming when you tore the map off her back and mounted it to the wall. Exactly. Yes. If anything, it would be easier for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Except Enola, unfortunately. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Enola. When he mentioned stretching the map, mounting the map, I did envision from Doctor Who, uh, Lady Cassandra? I believe that's her name. From the very first episode of the new series. Yeah, they're about to watch the sun explode and yeah. she's like the last living human. She's the last living human and all she is is a piece of human leather, basically, stretched and mounted. One of my favorites. Yes. <laughs> she's Moisturize me. Moisturize me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's literally like a pair of eyes and a mouth on this stretched piece of skin. Oh, Doctor Who. <laughs> Always giving us the best of human culture. <laughs> Speaking of the best of human culture, the deacon, when he's told that they're not any closer to deciphering it, he just tells Nord and the doctor to take Enola away, and then he steps up to a painting on the wall of good old Captain Joe, who yeah. he refers to specifically as Saint Joe. Saint Joe. <laughs> I know that we talked about Joe before, but I did want to add a couple of things to our previous discussion. Joe Hazelwood was the captain of the Exxon Valdez that 
crashed into Alaska in... 1989. 89, thank you. And this is the same Exxon Valdez. At the time, it was suspected that he was drunk when that happened, and it happened because he was drunk, and he took a lot of heat for that, legally and socially. But he was exonerated of being intoxicated during the incident. He did have alcohol issues his whole life, but not on the day that the Exxon Valdez crashed. <laughs> it's tough to say, right? Because if he was drunk, we could just go, ah, he was drunk. But if he was not drunk, is it now just bad ship piloting? Right. Now he's just a bad captain. Yeah. <laughs> you have to wonder, which is worse? Which right. is worse? To be bad at your job or to be, I guess... Also bad at your job, but also a bit of an alcoholic at the same time. Yeah. Which one is more damning? Right. Hey, there's a Denzel Washington movie, something about he's piloting a plane drunk and something happens to the plane. Oh, yeah. And he's able to... He's able to save the plane. Yeah. But he was drunk while doing it, so he gets a lot of heat for it. Something like Flight Plan, although it's not Flight Plan, that's a different movie, but it's something like that. Oh, it's called Flight from 2012. Okay, Flight from 2012. So it's kind of the same thing with a plane instead of an oil tanker. I wonder if the captain of the Ever Given is going to have the same longevity of fame as Hazelwood. <laughs> Ooh. You realize. That Wasteland Weekend needs a new ship? Well, first and, it, and foremost. And now be the Ever Given? Putting the Exxon Valdez in Waterworld. Awesome idea. Yeah. But... Because of the nostalgia cycle that we keep talking about, if you were to make a Waterworld 2, you could have another <laughs> large ship and have it be the Ever Given. Absolutely. Yes. And it's just in the way. <laughs> <laughs> just always in the way. Like, is anyone piloting way. it? No. No, it's just in the way. <laughs> I was going to say, if it was going to be at Wasteland Weekend, it couldn't be like in Wasteland City. It would have to be on the road to get to Wasteland City and just yes, blocking it. Yes, in the it. way. <laughs> just in and the people way. People would have to go around it. That would make an amazing entry gate. You drive up to it and it looks closed, but then you pull up the side of yes. it and you can drive through it. Like a little check-in station. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we do have a check-in station. Wastelanders, you have a mission. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you just say that and then people do it. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah, we put it out there. People hear it. Drop the idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Joe Hazelwood was convicted not of being intoxicated, but he was convicted of misdemeanor negligence for discharging oil. He was fined only $50,000 and sentenced to 1,000 hours of community service. And that's it. He would have gotten off so much easier if the side of the ship hadn't cracked open. Like, if he yeah. had just ran aground, mm -hmm. then no there, big deal. Yeah, no big deal. It was the oil that he was convicted for. And his original sentence, the community service, was specifically to help clean up his own mess. Good. But, unfortunately, they were in appeals for eight years. So it was done by the time they actually enforced the sentence. So they made him go to Alaska anyways and perform community service. So he picked up trash on local roads, and then he went to a soup kitchen to serve his thousand hours. So he still huh. served in Alaska, which I appreciate. Well, hopefully in the soup kitchen, he at least had to like empty out the fryers or something. Yeah. Yes. Something cleaning up the oil would be nice. Anything. <laughs> 
Julia, when you were researching about Joe Hazelwood, you sent me a Far Side comic. Yes, I did. Of the life and times of Captain Joe. And it's just him throughout his life spilling things constantly. <laughs> yes, it is. It's great. <laughs> and it doesn't even make a reference to the Exxon Valdez. Yeah. It's just pictures of him throughout his life spilling things. It makes me really worried for the people at the soup kitchen he was working with. Like if he's carrying this oh, big no. pot of soup and suddenly he's getting a little too close to the countertop. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! him away before he pops a hole in the side of the pot and <laughs> yes. spills it everywhere. Like uh, what's his name on the office with his fav- famous chili? Right. Yes. <laughs> oh no. Exactly. Oh, oh Captain Joe. <laughs> Kevin. Kevin with his chili. Oh no. We they need said... an artist to draw another cell onto that comic strip. Yeah. Yeah, just Captain Joe as Kevin from the office. Yes. In the soup kitchen. Oh, that's great. <laughs> the deacon has put on a more ceremonial garb in this scene as he's preparing to address his smokers. I want to dip back into the book because it describes his outfit a bit. From another room that connected to this one, the smoker chieftain swept in. The deacon had changed into an elaborate patchwork robe with flowing vestments, very colorful, purple here, yellow there, black, gold, each patch a precious fragment from the past. None of it went together very well, but it was impressive, Enola thought, in an awful way. How do I look, the deacon said, eyes a glitter, or anyway, I. Be brutal now. Like a king, the doc said. A warrior king, the Nord added. Bless you both, the deacon said, beaming. I feel like a samurai pope. The two men seemed as confused by this as Enola. Neither samurai nor pope meant a thing to her, but they obviously meant a lot to the deacon, who was gliding around his quarters, twirling before his two cronies like a girl with a new tunic. Why didn't we get that in the movie? I'm upset. I want to see him twirl around and be giddy about how good he looks, or thinks he looks. Seriously a missed opportunity. A samurai pope. I now have a costume idea. Oh my yes. <laughs> Samurai Pope. Samurai I mean, Pope. they kind of do dress the same, right? They're both a little bit over the top and mm-hmm. open bottom, like a big old bell mm-hmm. dress type of thing. I think we're onto something here. The way the book describes the deacon's outfit reminds me a bit of a concept drawing from the Making of Waterworld book where it showed the deacon dressed out in essentially a patchwork admiral's jacket (laughs) i like how even though the descriptions don't necessarily match what we're getting here the deacon is about to don a hat in an upcoming clip before he goes out to address his public got it oh is that what he's holding in his hand Mm -hmm. okay it kind of looked like a boot yeah it's an admiral's cap like one of those large flat looking ones yeah very british yeah Yeah, like a tricorn almost. I I forget exactly what shape it's in. Yeah, I did not research hats this time around, so I'll have to put a special (laughs) note in for the future episodes so I can properly identify this one. It looks like something out of a movie about Napoleon. I'll say that Horatio Hornblower. Right. Exactly. Yeah. While the deacon is standing next to this portrait of Captain Joe, he says, St. Joe were close after centuries of shame. And I appreciate that we finally get someone saying out loud at least a general idea of how long it's been between real world and water world. We'd have that description of centuries. Mm-hmm. Which lines up with the timeline that we have been told of four or five hundred years. Yeah. 
I noticed his reference to shame. And I thought a lot about that. And I, I don't really know what it means. I don't really know what he's referring to. Well, don't forget that they consider the mutants to be abominations, right? Right. So humans are not meant for the water. And he says that earlier during the interrogation on the atoll when he gives his, his very cute uh, Sermon on the Mount that he made land and he made water and the two shall not mix, something like that. So he sees them living on the water as a step toward abomination in his strange water world religion that he's created. I imagine that he equates living on water as we would equate living out in the woods under a bridge. It is a lesser state of being as far as living conditions are concerned. People who are homeless are not lesser inherently. The form of shelter they are utilizing can be considered as lesser, but the people themselves, everyone's equal. Don't think I'm talking down about homeless people. I'm just talking down <laughs> about the structures that they use and drawing the equivalents there. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. <laughs> Making it clear. I do like the idea that in his point of view, his religious point of view, they are made to be on land. Therefore, it is shameful that they are not where they're meant to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I'm on board with that. Yeah. And that's what kind of creates the fanaticism about dry land, right? Is it's, mm -hmm. It would be nice to be on dry land. Obviously, they can survive on the water just fine. But land would not only be better for their survival, but also better for their God-given place in the world. <laughs> I'm reminded of the Israelites wandering through the wilderness for 40 years looking for the promised land. I like that. I don't know if it was felt as something shameful that they hadn't reached the promised land yet, but I can definitely see how they might have felt that way. Especially because as you look at a map, it doesn't take 40 years to get from Egypt to Jerusalem. So the fact that it took them 40 years, somebody was doing something wrong. <laughs> It definitely could be looked at as shameful that it took them so long to get there. And that is where they're supposed to be. That's their inheritance, their God-given promised land, yeah. where they can then go forth and multiply and fill the land. <laughs> Pave paradise and put up a parking lot. Absolutely. That's the one. That's, yes. <laughs> Straight from the Bible. Corinthians 312. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of religions around the world have a concept of a promised land. Yeah. I don't want to go too deep on the religious side, but I mean, obviously the deacon is a religious figure and that's what they're kind of basing him off of. This idea that there's some place better that we're supposed to be in modern Christianity, it's heaven. It's, it's all about trying to get to heaven. And that's his idea is he's trying to guide his flock to heaven, which is in this case, Dryland. All of this talk makes him and his group feel a lot more sympathetic. <laughs> yeah, he's totally <laughs> meant to be a sympathetic bad guy. Yeah. The longer you spend with the smokers and the less you see of them pillaging and destroying yeah you start to get really sympathetic about them that's something that we should definitely consider for that scene that we're about to get to later on where the mariner drops the flare into the oil vats of the exxon valdez and sinks the entire thing there's going to be a lot of discussion about did he just commit genocide because it kind of feels like it is but that's another discussion for another day mm -hmm. what are we willing to forgive yeah because <laughs> i know you still harbor a bit of a grudge against the mariner for selling helen to the drifter yes yes i do for beating her and abusing her physically and emotionally and verbally and yeah i do 
Oh yeah, I don't think the Mariner is a good guy. No. Yeah. Until the end, and he shows one little spark of being a good guy. He's as close to an anti-hero as a protagonist can be without actually being an anti-hero. Yeah, he is. He does like one good thing, and that qualifies him to be the protagonist <laughs> of the movie. Right. <laughs> the rest of the time he's doing crappy things. When I was researching for my little mini essay about Waterworld, somewhere along the line, someone called the Mariner a jerk. And I was like, that's exactly what he is. He is just self-centered, doesn't care about anyone else, and he'll do whatever it takes to ensure his own survival over anyone else's or over any semblance of morality. And it's just him gaining that tiny little bit of morality by the end of the movie that makes him the hero of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, this movie is really about Helen. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, she is the hero. She has her goal in the beginning, which is to protect this girl. The girl gets taken away from her, and she spends the whole movie trying to get her back. I definitely prefer to look at Helen as the protagonist rather than the Mariner. Absolutely. She is the Princess Leia to the Mariner's Han Solo. (laughs) Yes, exactly. when, When you think about the story of Star Wars, yeah, Luke's got some important stuff to do. But in the overall galaxy shaping events leia is just as much of a main character as luke but we do not need to get into star wars right now yeah (laughs) unnecessary it's a whole another podcast we were talking about the mariner let's stick with the mariner because in the clip we see him skipping across the water on his jet ski following this trail of fire into the distance i want to duck back into the book dawn was as fiery as the line of fire the mariner chased as he drove the smoker jet ski He only hoped its go-juice supply would hold out, carving through these choppy swells. He kept his eyes locked dead ahead, glued to the horizon, waiting for something to show itself, reveal itself, waiting to find out just what foul secret place the smokers skulked off to after their vicious atoll raids. The mariner hunkered over the jet ski with a sense of purpose as single-minded as a shark with blood in its snout, whispered, I'm coming, Enola, I'm coming for you. No one heard these words but the wind and the mariner himself. Or did the child, locked away in some dank cell, hear them too, by the way of a tingling on the back of her neck? Ew, what? (laughs) Who wrote this? (laughs) Most of the time, I'm totally on the side of the novelization. It's so good. And then sometimes, sometimes, it's just so bad. Oh, wait, hold on. You love the idea of Enola having some sort of magical effect to her. I do, but I don't want that to be with the Mariner. Like being able to hear his promise of rescue. Yeah, I want that to be with her people that she came from. I want it to be her own innate abilities, things she doesn't know were there, that are for her. I don't want to have anything to do with the Mariner. (laughs) That is very fair. At some point along the way, she does idolize the Mariner to almost like a godliness where I think this is a couple scenes later, or maybe it was before, I forget. No, it was before in the jail where she's talking about how the Mariner is going to find her no matter what and that the last thing they'll see is him before they die. So I think she does have this connection with him and she definitely sees him as, if not a father figure, a god figure to her. Yeah, she's put him on a pedestal. Oh, yeah, she definitely has. Yeah, it's she one of is those... so sure that he's going to come for her. Yeah. When in their time together, he is given no sign that he is that attached to her. Just the swimming scene. <laughs> yeah. It's just from her end. <laughs> 
This fiery path that the Mariner is following leads him into a thick fog bank, and as he drifts through it, he finds the rusty, grody-looking side of the D's. One of the first things he does as he floats up to it is he pulls the machete from off his back. At first, I thought, okay, that's kind of silly. What's he going to do? Stab the boat. But the more I thought about it, it's like, okay, he doesn't know who's on the other side of these holes. There could be someone waiting to try and attack him, so he wants to be able to defend himself. But at the same time, it's like, oh, he's going to hack through the boat? Like, he's going to hack through a jungle or something like that? Like, <laughs> I, he I loves think that machete so much. definitely why he put it away so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I did take note of the barnacles and the sheer oh, amount of the barnacles, which is insane. A detail that I really liked is that the barnacles seem to be like working their way up the side of the boat, except barnacles don't do that. But what it is, is that the boat is sitting higher and higher as they're using the oil in it. So the top line of those barnacles, that used to be underwater, and now it is no longer. I love that. Yeah. They've used up a lot of oil. Yes. I think this is a production thing. When he brings his jet ski all the way up to the edge where the barnacle pile and the water meet it feels very shore like like there's an angle and mm. slope to the barnacles it felt landmass ish it felt very permanent and solid yeah and it kind of made me think well when does an object in the water stop being an object in the water and start being a mass in the water a landmass i don't think is the right term but when does it stop being a boat and start being a something more? I imagine that the D's is almost shaped like an iceberg at this point, where once you hit that waterline, you've got all of this organic, maybe growth slash death <laughs> <laughs> as it's massing around the bottom. Because you can look at regular boats out in the water right now, and if they sit for too long, they start getting barnacles and the barnacles right. start adding up. And if you don't scrape them off, say goodbye to the efficiency of the movement of your boat. Right. The fact that they're able to get this boat moving at least a little bit with just the oars that they have is <laughs> preposterous to begin with. But with all of this growth, it must be incredibly difficult. And I love this scene because they had to use the fog to hide that this is a set piece. Right. <laughs> yeah. In a fake on-set ocean the Exxon Valdez ship was, I think, a one-fifth or a one-sixth scale. So it was fairly small. So you can't show that next to Kevin or he's going to look just massive. So they built this wall to act as the outside, except they didn't build it to scale, really. I'm sorry, it is kind of built to scale, but they didn't build the whole thing. Right. And so I think they used the fog to cover up where it just simply stops. <laughs> and they made the fog so thick that you can only see, what, 15 feet, 20 feet tops? It was a really clever way to hide the production of this scene and also to show him approaching it, not just crawling straight over the side, so that we do kind of get the idea that this is a real thing in the ocean. People who are watching the entirety of this movie like a normal person, meaning all at once, will likely notice that as soon as they don't need to show the side of the boat at the waterline, the fog clears up. Yeah, it breaks, and now we don't have to worry about it because we're not showing that portion of the boat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very convenient timing for nature to cooperate like that. Yeah, but the extended cut does have a couple extra scenes where the smokers are inside, kind of in the, the workshop where they mm -hmm. work on the boats there. 
we get a little bit more time in the fog to kind of say, you know, there's more of a passage of time than in the theatrical cut where things happen really fast at this point. Mm. Going to be a lot of talk about a guy named Horse. <laughs> say that much. <laughs> I love Horse. Horace or Horace? I always thought it was Horace, but who knows? Horace is the unlucky guy that the Mariner steals the clothes off, and then Smitty is the head mechanic who gets plastered. <laughs> and then you've got Mechanic 1 and Mechanic 2 who are just a great little duo. I'm yeah. very excited to talk about them later <laughs> down the line. I want to duck back into the book one last time for this week's episode. A ship! Poseidon save him, the biggest ship he or anyone in Waterworld had ever seen. An ancient vessel taller than ten of old Gregor's windmills. The bow of the beast rising high, curving out over the mariner's head as he approached. A steel monster encrusted with barnacles and deeply rust-pitted. He cut his engine and jumped from the bobbing jet ski onto the shelf of barnacles at the ship's base, where water lapped at the rusty waterline as if licking a wound. He began to climb finding rusted-out holes that provided purchase as he went. I like the addition of the holes in the side of the ship. Not only are they convenient for Kevin the actor to climb, but they make sense in-universe that the smokers would cut these holes so that if they need to get up to the deck from the waterline, they don't necessarily always want to wait to get to the specific stations where they probably have platforms or holes where you can drive your jet ski up in. So you just have these easily accessible convenience ladders. That's interesting. I always thought of them as the leftovers from battle, where the Ds would have been kind of the castle. Before the movie, I imagine there was a lot more atolls. Maybe they used the Ds ship as their actual like battle ship, in a way, mm -hmm. to get closer. So it may have seen more action in the past. But yeah, I always kind of see it as, this ship's seen some fights. We were bemoaning the fact that the smokers aren't able to just use the Exxon Valdez as a battering ram, sail it right through the center of an atoll and destroy it in the process. <laughs> Maybe they did try that and they sank too many without being able to pillage. <laughs> right. It's pillage then burn, not pillage, the other way burn. around. Yeah. 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 <laughs> a lesson you only need to learn once. Right. I do love that they built this wall, that all the different things they did to create the Valdez. I think there were a few different models. There was the floating one. There was the one in the parking lot. There was this wall for him to climb. It's really wild how much it takes to put together a movie like this and make it all make sense. I think it's pretty wild. No wonder it costs so much, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Good foresight of them to build a lot of parking lot models instead of trying to sail out yeah. A fully sized ship. Right. And speaking of which, they created one of the very first good computer generated water for this movie, which is insane because I had never noticed it before. And you know how so much CGI, especially from the early 90s, breaks down today when you watch it? The water looks great. It does. Even the CGI that you can see and it maybe doesn't hold up, it still looks great. Mm-hmm. There was a forgivableness back then that we can hold today. Yes. Now, when I watch Legolas jump up on a bunch of different orcs and fly <laughs> through the air on elephant trunks, I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> That's where I can see what you're doing here. Not when you're trying to recreate what could actually happen in real life. Just do it safely. Exactly. <laughs> here at the end of the episode, 
Makeshift, it's always good when two drifters meet that something be exchanged. Could you share with our listeners where they can find more of your stuff? The Apocalypse Post is at theapocalypsepost.com. That will lead you directly to my YouTube channel, which is The Apocalypse Post. There's also an Instagram at The Apocalypse Post. These are pretty easy to find. And then, of course, there's the podcast, which is The Apocalypse Postcast, because I got real clever that day. <laughs> and that is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And if it's not where you listen to podcasts, let me know so I can try to get it on there. There's so many of these podcast sites. And that's pretty much it. That's all my spots. Oh, and then, of course, there's a presence on Facebook at, of course, The Apocalypse Post. If you want a major case of FOMO when it comes to Wasteland Weekend, definitely check out The Apocalypse Postcast. You've also done at least one episode where you reviewed a movie. It's an eclectic collection of post-apocalyptic media that I highly recommend you go check out. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's fun, it's fun because we get to do some stories. There's some informational episodes. There's some general like apocalypse fan episodes. And then we really get into Wasteland Weekend when we do it. As for us, come back next time. We will see the Mariner scale the side of the D's. Deacon will address his parish. And the Mariner will catch sight of the skyboat being refueled. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 68. We'll see you next time.